Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. Coming up on the show, I'll just give a very quick introduction. We're going to be speaking with um, Auntie Megan and also Jerry, and we'll be, they, they are from the National Suicide Prevention Trauma and Recovery Project, and they will introduce themselves in full when we get started. We're going to be speaking to them about a class action suing Banksia Hill, and I believe that's a, a youth detention um, facility, if you could call it that, um, and former inmates um, are suing them. Um, these inmates have been in detention and, and their youth, and we're going to be speaking to them about that. Then after that, we'll be speaking with Scott Cosgriff from the Human Rights Law Centre. He's a senior law- lawyer, and we'll be speaking with him about stranded refugees and people on temporary visas who must be part of Australia's reopening plan and opportunities to leave and return to Australia could be a moment of hope for everyone who's been separated from loved ones because of travel restrictions. But the Morrison government is refusing to put forward a full plan which leaves almost a million people in limbo. Former inmates, going back to the first topic of the Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre, are planning a class action lawsuit over conditions at the centre that observers say condemn children as young as 11 to a life of trauma and disadvantage. And Solicitor Stuart Levitt, he's the lead lawyer on the case, and he said the alleged treatment of children at the centre is a failure of the state government's duty of care to vulnerable children, and this is in WA. So we'll be crossing over pretty, pretty shortly to Jerry and Auntie Megan to talk about this. Tune in to Grounding Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're making space to explore what disability justice has been and will be on these lands, with programming led by Black and Indigenous community members, in addition to programs by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2021. And you're back with the Doing Time show, and I'm hoping that I'm welcoming here um, Jerry and, and Arnie Megan to the show. Hi, Marissa. How are you going? Thanks for having us. It's great to have you. Auntie, you're a bit faint there. Can you speak up just a tiny bit? So, that's have got Megan Crowder and Jerry George Artis from the National Suicide Prevention Trauma Recovery Project. 
to just let your listeners know we're actually driving to a refuge or so outreaching to support a, a young homeless mum who was left on the streets pregnant and, uh, and she's given birth and we've got her in a refuge and we've secured housing for her. It's a little bit of the work that we do in trauma recovery and, and stabilisation. But we've launched a, uh, a class action. Formal correspondence of that class action has been served, uh, hand-delivered by myself and Megan to the government of Western Australia who's been sued on behalf of the juvenile detention facility, which, in other words, is a children's prison. There are 17 children's prisons throughout Australia, 17 New South Wales, and, and one, one in Western Australia. For us, it should be an abolition of children's prisons and alternative uh, uh, psychosocial supports and other assists. And uh, there are 500 plaintiffs, 500 young ones uh, and older ones who have been uh, based at juvenile detention facility since its establishment from 1997 uh, and to the present. Uh, and 500 is significant because we've estimated about 10,000 have gone through and, uh, and, and we want thousands. It'll, it's the largest class action of its type. We want social reforms. We're not going to wait decades for them. We've been fighting for them and getting small reforms on an incremental basis. We need, these are our most vulnerable children. There are no more vulnerable children than the children that finish up in, in our children's prisons across this country. And uh, if we can't treat our children uh, uh, in the best way possible, those who are the most vulnerable, then we betray our children. And we weren't put on this earth to betray children, particularly uh, the most vulnerable. And uh, I have not seen more vulnerable uh, uh, individuals and these young children who have been born into unfairnesses and sufferings from the beginning of life, and they do not get the nurture that they should get in juvenile detention facilities. Seventy percent uh, go on to adult incarceration, and that's because they're failed by these uh, defensian, draconian, abominable, hideous, reprehensible children's prisons. For sure. And it's almost like a Dickens poorhouse, isn't it? It's a poorhouse. It's a holding pen. Uh, what I've seen in there, cages within cages. And there's a, 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 an isolation unit uh, where it's even smaller cells. Uh, and if you stretch both arms out, you can touch both walls. That's how big uh, those cells are. But they do not get an equivalency of support uh, to that of the outside. Uh, and these children need ramped up uh, supports. They don't even get the equivalency. Uh, in fact, one in four go without any educational activity throughout the year, according to the Productivity, Productivity Commission reports and government services in relation to Banksia. And that's a story across the country in all 17 children's prisons. Uh, in, one in every uh, two days, uh, there's a uh, suicide attempt, a self-harm. And uh, uh, every 10 days on average, there's a serious assault. And, uh, and uh, there's a lot of rough handling, maltreatment, abuses. Uh, four young children in the last uh, uh, three years, post-Banksia, post-being released, have taken their lives. That's how bleak they come out to a sense of hopelessness. Forty percent of these children are in the care of the state, they're in the care of child protection, so they're being doubly failed by child protection and also by corrective services. Uh, and what we actually need is nurturers. If you're going to have these types of facilities, which I, I, we don't agree with in the first place, where, they should, where you need a secure circumstance, they should be uh, community-based uh, resource facilities of a psychosocial nature and psychosociality needs to be understood in terms of psychosocial disabilities and specialist needs and we've got to ramp up the nurture and the nurture doesn't happen in any way whatsoever. If there's any sign of distress from a young one, uh, they get rough handled and they get carted off to isolation and they get locked down. 
that's not the way you would treat your children in a familial setting. And that's no, and, and the most vulnerable children should not be treated in that way at all. All it does is harden them up and, uh, and season them for uh, a life of diminution. And how many, how many young people are actually suing the government again? How many are there? More than 500. And we will have thousands because Megan and I have been travelling the state uh, collecting the testimonies. They're harrowing. They, uh, the testimonies, when you've got hundreds, there's a much the sameness of what's being alleged. And that goes to the heart and soul of evidence, which is corroboration. Uh, the, the stories that we're hearing are searing, uh, uh, gut-wrenching, heart-aching. And uh, we will have thousands by the time we get to court. The writ will be formally served. The formal correspondence has been served. The writ will be formally served by Levitt and Robinson and other senior counsel that will be working alongside him from Victoria and the Northern Territory, so three states, New South Wales, Victoria, Northern Territory, providing senior counsel, led by Stuart Levitt, who's the Palm Island warrior, who won that case for Palm Island against the Queensland government and the Queensland police, $30 million and 100000 uh, each uh, plaintiff citizen. Oh, Palm yes, Island. that's right. We've, we've done a lot of coverage on, on, um, on Lex, actually. It, it all ties in, doesn't it? Um, now... What are your thoughts on this, um, Megan? Oh, look, it definitely needs to happen. I mean, we've got, like Jerry was saying, we're not hearing this, or we're not researching it. We're actually going out to the people. And people are just really excited about the prospects of doing something and taking some form of action against a system that has hurt them, that has destroyed them, that has, in fact, killed many of our people, and that's reality. As Jerry mentioned, 70% do go on into adult prisons. And over here in Western Australia, one in 12 Aboriginal men are in prison today. We are the mother of all jailers. We can't rely on government because we've been begging and begging and begging for the government to implement the Royal Commissioning to Aboriginal Death in Custody since 1991. It hasn't happened. So therefore, what needs to happen and what we're doing with this particular class action is that we're taking it to court and the court can compel. Whereas the government, we know that there is political, there is a lack of political will. That's been evident for since the beginning, and that's just atrocious. Some of these kids, some of the assertions, some of the allegations, they're getting slammed to the ground. They're being locked into, you know, Harding, they call it the intensive supervision unit, for yeah. months on end. Um, they're being denied psychological services. The education is absolutely appalling. Prisoner visits, um, visits with their families and so forth. So this is child abuse. This is child abuse that's happening to our children, whether you're black, white or brown. They need to stop it, and the only way that they can stop it, they need to be forced to stop it, and that needs to happen with the court. So we believe in all these ones that are back in the other streets. That's right. Um, so basically, we believe in this class action. We're not mucking around with this government, because what if we don't do this class action and rely on the government's will, we're going to see more deaths, we're going to see more people take their lives. We're going to see more hurt children. There's a there's a young person, ten to from the age of ten, he's now seventeen. He's been in and out of that system about forty odd times. Forty odd times. So you have to question where is the intense psychosocial support? Where is the support for this young person when they leave the prison system? The criminal justice system in total is failing our people right across the nation. So that's why we need to do this class action because it will compel the government to um, basically redress the issues that we're speaking of. Two things, right across the nation, Aboriginal people fall below the poverty line by 40%. Over here in Western Australia, it's 60%. Um, 
with this class action, firstly, because it is a poverty narrative, every person that is on that class action, every person yes. that's on that class action, we will make sure they will be entitled to some compensation. Secondly, it is about that systemic repair. So we know many of these young children, they're coming out of prison without birth certificates, photo IDs, um, and the proper care support that, that's needed to ensure that people don't go back into this prison system. Bottom line is this, Marissa, and thank you for taking the time to speak to us about this important issue, is that we're not playing around with this government. Lives are on the line, kids are being abused, and we're taking it to court. Look, thank you so much, Auntie. And, uh, look, I really commend both you and Jerry for, for the amazing work that you two are doing and the fact that you two basically started the National Suicide um, Prevention Trauma Recovery Project, didn't you? That's right. Two and a half years ago, I left a uh, Commonwealth task force where I was the national coordinator of the uh, responders. It was the post-pension task force and suicide prevention. Megan and I worked there for three years, and Megan came from the Royal Commission uh, from uh, working for No More Legal Centre uh, and to taking out the stories of child sexual abuse from people incarcerated, 27 prisons, 30-odd communities. She spent two and a half years in that Royal Commission. I spent my life in suicidality, but for three years we were at the uh, Commonwealth Task Force. I was national coordinator of the responders. Sure. You know, we saw tragedy. We saw death. We saw it every day, and it just breaks the heart. The youngest suicide I responded to was of a nine-year-old child, and I spent days on end supporting that child's family. We wanted to do something more in suicide prevention. We've gone uh, without remuneration for the last two and a half years, and I've dug out of my pocket and from uh, fundraising to just get us off the ground. And, and in Western Australia, at least, we reduced the... Uh, uh, we worked with all brothers and sisters from migrant-born backgrounds because they're a third of the suicides. People don't know that. Uh, uh, all Australians uh, remote and regional living and urban masses and uh, First Nations brothers and sisters to the suicide toll is one in 17 deaths is a suicide, it's a tragedy. One in 38 are the migrant born and one in 50 all Australians, and that's 2% of all Australians dying by suicide. But we were actually able to lower for many categorical risk groups in Western Australia in particular, and uh, lesser so across the country because coronavirus and all that happened and made our outreach harder to do. And uh, the two and a half years we spent saving lives, making a difference that way, the, the, the struggles we've had on the smell of an oily rag, well, they've been worth it, but they've taken a toll on ourselves. But we do what we do, and uh, we've been proud to do that for, for brothers and sisters, young and older. I guess one of the things that really resonates with me that will never leave me, and there's many things that won't leave me, but there's a, there was a young boy who was 19 years old at the time. He passed away up at Acacia Prison. Over in yes. Western Australia, Acacia Prison, you know, basically you've got seven, you know, 1,500 gentlemen at that particular prison. But this young person, he'd come through Bankia. Seeing this little person, you know, on on life support, and after life support, Miss Shane was turned off. Being with mum, still loving and caring about mum today, that is definitely something that will never leave me because that is the life that could have been saved. And, Marissa, on this note, we probably have to leave because we're at the rest. Yes, of course. Look, I was just about to suggest it. Look, thank you so yes. much, and I'm just going to say to listeners that, you know, um, try to spread the word about the um, Western Australian government fulfilling its obligations and responsibilities to these children. Thank you so much, both of you, and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Marissa, and hopefully it has effect from precedents across the country. And on one note, to your next uh, interview, uh, I couldn't help but listening... Uh, you're talking about uh, refugees and asylum seekers, which are close to our hearts. We've gone into many battles, and they're a, a categorical risk group to suicidality. 
Uh, we need a Human Rights Act federated in every state and territory, and we need prisoners' rights, asylum seekers' rights, uh, special residents, visa holders, temporary and, and permanent, all protected, all protected. Every person that walks this continent needs to be protected. Much love to you, Melissa. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, darling. Appreciate that. Bye, Bye-bye. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long covid as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Hey you mob, this virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag Vaxed and Proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. 
current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs. And students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
Get your Radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Community Radio giving the voice to communities since 1976. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. Global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop, take a breath, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Coming up at the Nightcap, Better Late, running till 3am every Friday and Saturday, featuring the best local and international bands and DJs, including Zeitgeist Freedom Energy Exchange, Gypsy Brown with Tando, Spasta with Adriana and Odd Mob, Domingo Latino Sundays with La Influencia and Calle Luna. Upcoming shows including Art vs. Science, Mod Con, I Know Leopard and more. For info and tickets, head to thenightcat.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Approximately 4.27 and you're with the Doing Time Show and you just heard a song by Alice Sky called 1966. Previous to that, you heard a double interview with Artie Megan and Jerry from Western Australia from the Suicide Prevention um, Project, which concentrates on um, trauma recovery and looking at the ongoing lawsuit that um, has been initiated by young people in detention, um, former inmates um, seeking compensation for the atrocities and violations of human rights performed in prison. Coming up next on the show, we're going to be speaking with um, with Scott um, from the Human Rights Law Centre. I'm going to be checking his full name as there might have been a bit of a typo um, in the media release here, so I'll check that with him in a second. But we'll, he's a senior lawyer at Human Rights Law Centre 
Um, and we'll be discussing um, a recent media release concentrating on stranded refugees and people on temporary visas who are not really part of Australia's reopening plan. Hello, Scott. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Great to be with you. It's lovely to have you. I'm wondering if you could just um, introduce yourself with your full name, please. Yeah, I'm Scott Cosgriff. I'm a senior That's lawyer it. at the Human Rights Law. <laughs> for the Human Rights Law Centre. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, the, the, the media release, the print looked a bit faint. Yeah, sorry about that. You've got an hour. Yeah, awesome. Now, almost a million people in Australia on temporary visas and 10,000 refugees remain in limbo. And this is because the Morrison government has refused to detail a complete plan for lifting international travel restrictions. Can you give us some analysis on this? Yeah, well, it's everyone who has been alive during the COVID-19 period has gone through some things. Just kind of identify with uh, the experience of being separated from people who are close to us. That be because of lockdowns, because of local border restrictions or international ones. And uh, our advocacy around international travel restrictions in particular was pointing out that everything the federal government had said about reopening let out a couple of really important groups. And um, we've had some really important announcements earlier today from the Home Affairs Minister that finally gives a little bit of certainty uh, to these people. Um, it means that uh, people living in Australia on temporary visas who have been unable to leave the country or return without an exemption can finally that from the start of next month. So, so there's a lot of um, a lot of joy and a lot of relief uh, associated with today's announcement, um, but it really underscores um, some of the not so great treatment that people on temporary visas have experienced in Australia in the last couple of years. And there's also a lot more work to do on refugee resettlement to make up for lost time. Absolutely. And it's it, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Um, and I'm glad that there have been some announcements. So effectively, what does that mean in practice, that people can, can come now without seeking an exemption, right? That's right. So... Before COVID, there was no such thing as exemptions. A visa is what gave you permission to enter and be in Australia if you weren't a citizen. And uh, for the last two years, we've had this additional requirement over the top, an exemptions system that really um, made it very difficult for people to travel. Now, as I say, restrictions on travel um, you know, weren't necessarily a bad thing. There's no doubt that oh. Australia's swiftly... Um, limiting movement was something that was important as a pandemic response and, and certainly saved thousands of lives. But our point is really about systems and setting up systems that um, uh, recognise the impacts of these um, restrictions on different people and don't discriminate on um, fairly specious grounds. If I can give you one example um, of uh, a couple of people who've been really um, negatively affected. Yep. Um, we worked with a couple um, from Melbourne called Ashish and Justin. They they fell in love when they were living in Melbourne and they happened to be travelling overseas before the pandemic and when the border closed. Um, as a result of that, Ashish wasn't allowed to return to Australia and that's because he, he's on a temporary visa. 
he lost his job in Melbourne, he lost his home, or because he couldn't get back, and he's been waiting ever since. Um, uh, Justin came back to, to Australia because he had family that he needs to be caring for and have had to conduct their relationship on screen ever since. And they, they really should have been allowed to be together and support each other during the pandemic. The only reason that Ashish hasn't been able to because he happens to be on a temporary visa. Um, they've been pouring their uh, time and their hearts into applying for exemptions to allow him to travel. Um, and until this morning, uh, Ashish had absolutely no certainty about when he'd be allowed back. So now that restrictions have eased for citizens and permanent residents, it's, it's good that the government's come in and said that they should ease for other people uh, as well. Um, and it's, uh, it's going to be really heartwarming for people like those to be able to um, reunite in the coming weeks and months. Indeed. I mean, that's just a, a, a wonderful step forward. Would you say then that today's announcement, is that going to alleviate um, the pro this process? Like, will poor transparency and no right to review be eliminated? Well, it, it means that the exemptions process simply doesn't apply to as many people. Um, it still applies to some people, some types of visas, it also um, depends on your vaccination status, and, and that, that includes your ability to provide evidence of your vaccination status. Um, that's going to continue to apply based on what's been announced today. Um, and, and one element um, where that's really quite relevant is refugee resettlement. Now, refugee resettlement is the other... Um, the other part that we say was really left behind in the reopening plan, uh, despite the really serious need for it to be taken more seriously. So refugee resettlement is where the Australian government selects or displaced around the world, grants them humanitarian visas, which allow them to travel to Australia and live in Australia for the rest of their lives. So pretty life-changing stuff for people. And at various times in history, Australia's done quite well on this front. It responded really well following Vietnam. Um, even the Abbott government stepped up a few years ago in response to um, the displacement from Syria. Um, but that has really grown, it, it slowed to a halt during the pandemic. Um, normally, in, in normal times, we would have imagined, you know, um, 1,000, 1,500 people every single month arriving in Australia, finally able to start rebuilding their lives in safety. Um, but Australia's really abandoned those humanitarian commitments for the last two years, um, not just in the sense that it hasn't been, you know, going through the, uh, the process of... Um, uh, assessing those people's applications and granting them visas. It's also applied that same exemptions process to people who had already been granted visas. There's another family that we uh, have been working with, um, a family who is now safe, living in Sydney. They were, they were displaced from Syria and uh, uh, were actually one of the beneficiaries of that um, Abbott government commitment to do more for people displaced from that conflict a few years ago. But they're now safe. Um, 
they've been able to go through all the disruptions of the last couple of years um, from their from their home in Sydney, but it's been a pretty stressful period for Diana and her family because her sister and her family were meant to be following in their footsteps. They uh, were in Iraq. They fled from Syria to Iraq. They were delighted and very relieved when they were granted a permanent visa by the Australian government. They were getting ready for the flight. Uh, their kids had even picked the clothes for the flight. And this was in March 2020. Um, and then all of a sudden everything changed and they were told to wait. And they're still waiting. They've endured the pandemic in, in Iraq instead of in Sydney. They have um, been struggling uh, in these circumstances that were already pretty dire and were made even worse by the pandemic. For, for her sister, it's really all about her kids. Um, speaking to the family, they just lament that the kids have missed out on two years of education that they might have been having in Australia instead. They've just been asked to patiently wait until things change. And there are now more than 10,000 people in that situation, people who the Australian government has granted permanent humanitarian visas to, um, but who haven't been able to travel because of these travel restrictions. That's another thing um, that changed today for the better. So in the coming weeks and months, um, hopefully people like Deanna's sister, sister are going to finally be able to travel um, to Australia. So that's a major that's a major upside. And, and just the one other point on refugee resettlement uh, is that there's a huge opportunity here for Australia to now begin making up for lost time. Um, I, I've just mentioned that there are a lot of people who've been granted humanitarian visas but haven't been able to actually travel to be resettled in Australia. But on top of that, there have been far less humanitarian visas granted than would normally be granted and far less um, than the government has actually committed to granting over time. And in fact, since the 2019 federal budget, 28,000 places have been stripped out of the humanitarian program over four years. That's 28,000 people's lives, people who otherwise would have been resettled in Australia, but now won't be. And we're calling on the federal government um, to make up that deficit, to make up that gap. We recognise that uh, COVID-19 and the travel restrictions was always going to cause some disruptions, but there's no reason why that has to be a permanent deficit. And there's every um, there's every reason for Australia to to make up the difference now. Some of that's going to be a little bit complicated. So um, vaccination requirements, for example, um, are simple to meet if you're in some parts of the world. They're much harder in other parts. So if you don't have um, access to money or you're living in a place where the health system isn't much good, uh, it doesn't matter how much you want to get vaccinated, it might be very, very difficult. And um, the uh, part of the extra work that's required to, to make up that gap in the humanitarian program involves um, actually proactively facilitating um, refugees in need of resettlement to meet those vaccination and uh, quarantine requirements as they're required. Um, a classic example would be someone who has been vaccinated but doesn't have the right paperwork to prove it. Um, there are going to be people desperately need in re of resettlement in Australia um, who fall into that situation and we don't want the federal government to simply say that's too tough 
too complicated. We want them to proactively identify the issues there and uh, help people to get out of precarious situations and be resettled in safety. Absolutely. And I believe... Thank you for, so much for mentioning the vaccine, Scott, because that's so important and it's not really talked about in the media very much about the fact that people from other countries a lot of the time don't have access to vaccines. That's right. If you, you look at some of the trackers um, of this data online, there are some really illustrative maps of the of the world painted according to how many doses have been administrated and administered. And there are some uh, countries, and Africa in particular, looks um, really left behind on this front. There's been a lot of really interesting advocacy about vaccine equity and making sure that the global supply of this life-saving treatment isn't only available to rich countries. Um, and there's been some success in, in improving that, but um, we should keep in mind with all of these, with, with the way we talk about vaccination, that um, it's not something that we want to see become uh, uh, something that's only available to, to rich people or rich countries. So governments need to do more in that, on that front as well. And um, that will have a really positive impact um, on a whole range of policy areas, but one of them is Australia's humanitarian program. Indeed, and I think humanitarian aid has been cut, hasn't it? It has. It's, it's uh, not part of the work that we're doing in relation to international travel restrictions, but we've seen in the last 10 years the, the aid budget be decimated. In terms of the, the way Australia deals with refugee resettlement, I think a really relevant point there is that Australian political leaders have time and time again tried to say that the reason we need to take really cruel and sometimes illegal policy approaches to people arriving by boat and seeking asylum is so we can uh, so we can have a really strong humanitarian visa program and, and resettle people from other parts of the world in an orderly way. And um, I think given that Australia's turned its back on so many of these people who've been granted humanitarian um, visas during the pandemic, um, it's really time to see them give some more priority to, um, to, to people who, are, who, who Australia's already committed to. There's another point about um, expenditure, though, and that is that we see that offshore processing, the kind of cruel and, and illegal policy that I was referring to, it continues. More than eight years on, um, people who arrived in 2013 are still detained and the government continues to pump eye-watering amounts of money um, into that policy. And... Uh, Every year that continues, that's more money that's not being spent on other more um, more positive um, humanitarian efforts, especially towards refugees. Um, and, and that's all the more reason for that, um, that really dark chapter of Australia's history to be brought to an end. Including the discriminatory practice of excluding people that have come by boat? There's, there's simply no no logic to it uh, or basis for it in international law. International law guarantees the right to seek asylum and protects it. Um, 
But Australia, as you know well, has um, drawn this clear distinction about uh, people's mode of arrival um, and and has um, really repudiated this right to seek asylum that we should be protecting. Absolutely. Now, look, I've kept you here a bit longer, Scott. I hope that's okay, because I've just okay. felt that this topic... Um, is, is really important. Just a, a final question in regards to the Human Rights Law Centre's paper. Um, I believe it's called Still Left Behind. Can you talk briefly about the, the five steps that have been outlined? I believe it's a five-step plan that's been outlined in that paper. Right. Well, I, I think really positively, a couple of them got ticked off by the government today. Oh. And that is that the, the people on the people who already hold humanitarian visas and people both living in Australia and people stranded overseas on temporary visas during the pandemic, they will no longer need an exemption to travel to Australia from the 1st of December. Excellent. But there are still some problematic elements that need to be addressed. One is the exemption system. Um, that I mentioned uh, that was really a policy that was uh, made up fairly hastily over a few days in March 2020, but is nonetheless still the law of the land. It's problematic because it doesn't have um, parliamentary oversight. There's no way for people who get negative decisions under it, separating them from their families, to seek independent review. Uh, and we think that that needs to be replaced by a policy that's more consistent, more transparent, um, uh, something that is not a, uh, a hastily constructed uh, emergency measure. Um, Absolutely. And then the other side of it is um, making up for lost time on refugee resettlement. I've already described a little bit about the deficits that have sure. emerged during COVID and the places that were cut. A really obvious um, way for the Australian government to immediately take steps to address that deficit is when it comes to the crisis in, the crisis in Afghanistan. Um, we've we've all seen it. We've seen the pictures of what's happened to Afghanistan since August. Uh, extreme levels of humanitarian need, and in a place that Australia has deep links to, both person to person links. It's also the site of our our largest military uh, commitment in recent years. Uh, Australia has a moral obligation to do more when it comes to offering humanitarian places to people from Afghanistan, whether they be still trapped in Afghanistan, the family members of refugees living in Australia, people who've recently um, fled to Pakistan or Iran, or indeed people who um, fled the Taliban years ago and are living in places like Indonesia. The, um, the need is obvious and it's high, and Australia can start to begin to make up for lost time by taking um, a swifter and more compassionate approach to displacement from Afghanistan. Scott, thank you so much for providing a really concise overview. You've explained this um, in, in a very accessible way for listeners. We actually have a lot of people um, that listen to this show that have lived experience and it's really fantastic that you've been able to uh, make a very valuable contribution. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be with you. Are there any final comments you wanted to make before we finish? 
Well, maybe one point about lived experience and and your listeners is just the extent to which people living on temporary visas in Australia are part of the Australian community. I think sometimes when we hear um, political leaders talk about skilled migrants or student visas or um, or even just international travel in general, it gets painted in these crude economic terms. It gets painted as holiday opportunities or, or skill shortages. The reality is that the people who are, who are going to um, finally get some relief out of today's announcements are, are our colleagues, our neighbours, our friends. They're people who are have lives in Australia and in many cases have been living in Australia for the best part of a decade. Um, so the discrimination, the double standards uh, that have endured uh, and are highlighted in our, in our report still left behind are really concerning um, and it's a really positive thing for some of those um, some of those examples of differentiated treatment um, to become a thing of the past. It's very true, and in fact, throughout the pandemic, um, ScoMo has turned his back on its on the humanitarian commitments, and I'm hoping that a lot more work is done. Thank you so much, and and thank you to the Human Rights Law Centre for doing the work. Thanks, Rachel. Take care. Bye. Hi, we're from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. The voice of West Papua rock. As a West Papuan living in Australia, I can sit down and while I'm cooking dinner, listen to the voice of my people and also give the opportunities for my children to be able to listen to it and to our awesome music that's coming out of our country that you wouldn't be able to hear on commercial radio. We love the voice of West Papua. Brilliant show, great hosts, fantastic information, and we love the voice of West Papua. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. 
everyone, it's Marissa back again with the Doing Time Show and we're just about to wrap up here. And it's approximately 4.52. And wanted to thank our guests today. First of all, thanking Auntie Megan, Norman Woman, and also um, Jerry from the, the Suicide Prevention Trauma and Recovery Project. And they talked about the class action um, initiated by young Aboriginal inmates, um, practically children, suing the Banksia facility, um, youth in detention, former inmates, suing them for atrocities that happened in prison. And then also thanking Scott Cosgriff, um, the senior human rights lawyer from the Human Rights Law Centre, looking at um, some of the things that have happened over the pandemic in regards to the exclusion of refugees and also looking at today's announcement and how um, some of that announcement has improved and lifted some travel restrictions for refugees. So that was quite timely for that to happen. It's approximately 4.54 and I'm going to be out of here pretty soon. Tune in every Monday, 4 to 5, for the Doing Time show. Take care of each other um, in this pandemic. I know that lockdown is over and things have reopened, but certainly the pandemic is not over. So please take care of each other and look after each other. And we'll be going out pretty soon with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella from the Rumpy Band. And a shout-out to all our brothers and sisters inside and to all, all peoples. Um, thanks so much and see you next week. Thanks. Bye. I'm true.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.